hungry, you're not able to appreciate play, beauty, any of these things. Like these are the right universal rights of every single human being. Like on this level, I'm like a total enlightenment liberal, right? If you're hungry, you're not able to have a relationship with art. You're not able to have a, relation, a pleasurable relationship to your surroundings. You're just surviving in this in an affluent society that actually has enough food to feed all of us. I mean, many times over. That's what kills me. Is this part of the problem that maybe today's liberals have lost their enlightenment values? Oh, yeah, completely. They don't care. They're anti-universal. And, and is this not a peculiar, it's a strange situation where you have to be on the left reminding the liberals of their... Enlightenment values. Because they went to and they read all those postmodernists and they were like, oh, humanism, universalism, bad. We have a whole indoctrination and a whole indoctrinated libertarian anarcho bunch of people who are in DSA. I'm here today with Catherine Liu, who is a professor of film and media studies at UC Irvine. She is the author of several books, the most recent of which is Virtue Hoarders, University of Minnesota Press in 2021. You can find her writing in Compact Magazine, Noema Magazine, and Business Insider. You can find her on social media, <laughs> BureaucatLu on Twitter, and CluAnon on Substack. Uh, how are you enjoying Substack? You recently made the leap. I am enjoying it a lot. You know, everyone's mad at Elon's Twitter. But it allows me to sort of write longer pieces, more direct, hide certain things for only like paid subscribers. Because I thought these like idiots who, um, I, I know we're not supposed to say that, but like people who just are really ignorant of your generation and younger just felt free to like say shit to me on Twitter. And I was like, you know what? I don't like being a gatekeeper, but you don't know anything. And why are you saying this to me? And why should I be mad? So it's really not a good format to have longer, um, more thoughtful takes, especially on something that matters to me, doesn't matter maybe to a lot of leftists, but art and the aesthetic education. So I realized that the Substack, I'm going to keep talking about topics that are more complex and actually give some space to talk about the aesthetic and why the aesthetic is so political to me and why this intimation of freedom and universal principles that's deeply embedded in the aesthetic education is at the heart of my leftist politics. We think of aesthetes usually as reactionary. We used to in the olden days. Now I don't know what people think of aesthetes as being oh, they're dime, <laughs> they're dime square types. But um I thought like thinking about art, taking more time out to think problems of art through, art and politics through, would be a good way to um, start the Substack. So Philip Guston was some of the first, you know, the Philip Guston show was the object of some of the first posts I made. But I thought this would be more of a playful, semi-public, semi-private field where I could argue for the aesthetic as an intimation of freedom. I like to keep that alive, thinking about art. I've always really cared about art and literature, and I'm an unabashed socialist snob about art. Well, that's, uh, that's a perfect intro because although I followed your, your work and your content for several years now, we first started chatting after your post about the Philip Gustin show. I've been a, a little bit reluctant to cover this because I try to not be too trapped to the news feed. I try not yeah. to let like weekly stories, momentary stories dictate what I do on the channel. Mm -hmm. 
But um, I think it is one of those important examples. When we look at art, we can see decisions that are ideological, they're value system decisions, and curation is, is really important. You mentioned gatekeeping before. I think in the era of giant horizontal web two free-to-use ad-driven platforms, we've really learned what curators and editors did in a previous era where certain things were, to use the term, gatekept, but also they allowed for expertise and they screened unqualified applicants from joining the space. And that mm-hmm. tends to yield a more robust, more uh, fruitful discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for maybe people who are not familiar, you recently attended the Philip Gustin Show. This is at the National Museum of Art in Washington, D.C. This mm-hmm. is a free-to-enter museum. There's no admission ever. It's a massive, massive retrospective. I think it's like 115 paintings in the show, something like that. It's, it's his life's work. How did you like the show? What did you what did you think about the show? I loved the show. I was like brought to my knees in ways that, you know, we want to be by art and and it just doesn't happen very often. But to give some background, in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, the show was supposed to open at the National Gallery and the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, the National Gallery and the Tate in London, and I think Houston were the four destinations of this major retrospective of Gustin's work. And remember that time in 2020 when everything was locked down, but we also thought like everything would just open up anytime? Mm-hmm. His show was slated to open, I think, that fall, and then it was postponed when the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests exploded May or June of 2020. Right. And the reason that the show was postponed or I actually didn't know if it was just going to be canceled at the time was that Gustin goes back painting and drawing these hooded figures who are in the first iteration, very clearly KKK members. The hoods through the years begin to look more and more are crumb like and they become less and less phallic and more and more like turd like. And I mean this in the very best way, like turd-like and sort of polymorphous, perverse forms. But um, he's working through these figures, obviously like an obsession. He can't stop painting them. In the beginning, when he painted them, early part of his career, they're riding in a car, they're menacing, they're perps. Forty years later, the final images of the hooded figure is very much a painter. The figure has a cigarette in his hand and paintbrushes in another hand and is looking at a canvas. And the color evolves from more black and white to, I would say, like this more fleshly, commodified. Today, maybe you could recognize this color. It's like that millennial pink, you know, (laughs) they become more and more pink somehow with black outlines. So I'm giving like this very formal, abstract description of them. But the curators all thought this was a bad time to be showing these paintings. Everyone had this moral panic among the elites in the curatorial world. And they thought that people were going to respond badly to his paintings and called them and Gustin a racist in light of these highly visible atrocities, the murder of George Floyd. And so... There was a kind of indefinite postponement of the show. And I can't remember the name of this guy. He's probably a hero. Like, I'm not that involved in the art world, but I'd like to write him a thank you note. One of the curators at Tate Modern was suspended from his job because he went on Instagram and just went crazy criticizing this decision. Gustin was 
for all those libs who are, you know, so up in arms, if you want to play the identity politics game, you could play it very well with Gustin because he came from a family of destitute Ukrainian Jews who first immigrated from what was then the Ukraine to escape the pogroms to Canada. Then his family went from Canada to Los Angeles, where his father was a boilermaker who became like literally a rag picker and killed himself when Gustin was 10. And it's in Los Angeles that Gustin first saw the KKK running wild. And I'm giving you all this biographical detail because the curators put a lot of this, a lot of time on the wall text to situate in Gustin. So let me just tell you, like, my understanding of Gustin at that time was he was a great painter, didn't know him very well, see this cancellation. I'm like, this is so horrific. It's censorship. I did know Gustin was Jewish, had struggled with all his own, like, and working class. I knew that he had worked for the WPA, too. He was like an out-and-out leftist, you know, fellow traveler, if not communist. My first response was, right, these curators think that viewers are so stupid that we don't know what is a citation and what is an endorsement. Like, we're just <laughs> so stupid. And this is like, this has become... This is like now the way people like official highest members of the professional managerial class in the culture industries really just think of people like they're really stupid and they're extremely hysterical. So we better watch our asses because we want to continue to have our good lives. And if we do anything controversial, everyone's just going to go off the deep end and it's going to be a huge headache for us because Normal people do not know the difference between when you're citing something and when you're endorsing something. Cancel culture had not really made itself known in my mind so deeply, although, you know, eventually, like, people tried to cancel me, and then I realized, okay, this is like mob justice on the internet. But um, fast forward to today, and I see, like, I just gave a talk at Hopkins, and I'm like, oh my God, the Gustin Show is at the National Gallery Come hell or high water, I'm going to go see that show. And it was an amazing show. It was amazing. So, like, kudos to them for showing 150 works, for making a difficult decision to be rigorous, to not pander. You know, this is the kind of show that art institutions, especially those that are publicly funded, like the National Gallery, should be doing, right? Yeah. It's an incredible education. And I mean, it just will kick your ass. And I know Gustin, I, I keep saying this, I, I'm not a Gustin expert, but I do know something about the 20th century. And he's truly like one of the most amazing American artists of the 20th century. So kudos to the curators for doing this. The guy who protested at the Tate has resigned. He's been suspended. But the other, so let's step back for one minute. Like what made this show possible now is probably because they realized like you can't actually cancel Gustin. He's too important. and also. The fact that they brought on like new people on the curatorial team, including a therapist who specializes in trauma, and Homi Baba, who's a named professor at Harvard, comes from a Brahmin family, vacations in Lake Como, Italy, and is nevertheless for the American elites a representative of diversity, which is just completely a joke to me, right? But anyway, we he's South Asian, and somehow that makes him 
qualified to soften the non-diverse nature of a curatorial team. And I think they brought on other African-American experts, but the therapist was really important because throughout the show, they're trying to frame Guston's work as a function of his own trauma. And that's like biographical reductivism, but it's also like treating us all like idiots. Like, you know, you're going to be really upset when you see this art, but he was really troubled just like you. So, you know, cut him a break. Like that's the way, that's the infantilizing way in which a lot of the wall texts were. And it is undoubtedly true that Gustin lived through an incredibly difficult, he had an incredibly difficult life, had an incredibly successful career, moved through all these different styles. And in the end was like obsessed with image making as a true artist would be, despite all of this stuff. I would say on this topic of trauma that there's there's two things that people like to conflate here, especially in elite cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. We like to think that great art comes from trauma in the way that if you get your heart broken or you have a formative childhood experience, this will shape the rest of your life. For sure. We're all romantics in that sense. Everyone can relate to that. But then there's this conflation of Gustin grows up in destitute poverty. That's a sort of trauma on its own. And if that we type never of trauma, talk about economic trauma, no, no, and and conceivably, if that type of trauma produces good work, then why alleviate this trauma? Because then you deprive the society of great art, right? That and that that is a very uh, important thing to disentangle. That we can't allow that conflation to happen. But in the uh, just to give a very brief bit of background on this, there was, uh, in addition to several curators that spoke out, there were a lot of people in the art world who. I'm in particular thinking of this open letter that describes a lack of faith in the intelligence of their audience at the museum, which I think is very accurate. The idea that someone could walk into this exhibition and think that this was in any way an endorsement or wasn't critical enough of the KKK is absurd on its face. This is really the thing that I'm interested to talk about. I'm interested in a theory of the professional managerial class as it relates to cultural institutions. That's my Mm -hmm. niche in this thing. And uh, it's a very unexplored area. Obviously, all the incentives lead in one direction if you work in these spheres. I somehow find myself on the periphery of this thing so I can ask the questions in general. But the idea that an audience would not be intelligent enough to make up their own minds is very much a managerial decision, right? Mm, So mm -hmm. let's say for the people, I have an audience that comes from the political background, an audience that comes from the art background. Should we first maybe just establish like a a good, strong definition of what the professional managerial class is? Do you mind if I give a longer definition then? Oh, sure, sure. the The contemporary PMC is a class that you could say is a strata of salaried workers who do not own the means of production, like the capitalist but who nevertheless manages other workers and enjoys the prestige of credentialism, expertise, and technocracy. This class was a very small class in 1900, and it has grown more powerful as capital itself has become more financialized and as our economy has become more and more deindustrialized. You know, if you look at 1900, the numbers of agricultural workers in the United States was, you know, 25 to 30%. Today, they're about 2 to 3%. And the manage, the sort of white collar worker made up 3% of the workforce. And now we make up about 25% of the workforce. Wow. And there are many reasons for this. Finance capital gets more complicated and needs more managers. 
and engineers to control the flows of labor and knowledge. So as production itself becomes more and more black boxed by engineers and algorithms, and workers merely respond to the rhythms of the machine, those who program the machines then become part of an elite salaried employee. And the corporate hierarchy in America has also become more and more complex, where hierarchical forms of management have to justify like profit-taking. But most importantly, I think it's the expansion of higher education as an institution of social reproduction, overinvestment in these hierarchies, That is what really has changed Hmm. in America of 1900, America of 2023. So college-educated people, we've increased the number of college-educated people in America. We constantly feel like that's a good thing. What I think is really ironic is the more college-educated people we have, the more fucked our politics are. (laughs) They just need more college education. There were actually more progressive, like leftists and more dissent and more actual political debate before we reached like this 33% college educated number that we have now. It seems like they knew more also. Yeah, exactly. And they could read complicated (laughs) texts for a really long time and had longer attention spans than we did. I had a friend who said like, who went to the Soviet Union right after Russia was collapsing. And she is a French professor and has a PhD in French like me. And she came back and she goes, you know what? Your average taxi cab driver in Moscow is better educated than your average PhD in America. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I believe it. So higher education has become a really important post-industrial industry in America. It's still its prestige value, its justification for American domination of the world through foreign policy, through international relations. These are really important functions. So the military-industrial complex encourages the growth of this as well as the liberal expansion in the culture industries Mm. of what we call like immaterial goods. You asked me, I think, why I say like the period of redistribution from 1945 goes to 1972 and not 1977 or 1980 when Reagan is elected, right? Sure. In 1972, there is already industrial policy that is directly addressing worker unrest and student unrest and anti-Vietnam War kind of thing. America is colluding with this foreign policy offshoring of jobs already by promoting the industrialization of countries with much cheaper labor, including Mm. Japan at that point, Taiwan, South Korea, the East Asian tigers, as we call them today. So in 72, Jim English says, and there are, you know, economic studies to back this up, the weight of things produced in America starts going down. And I think that's a really great way of measuring like productive versus non-productive labor. Like we stop making things so much anymore, like steel, even consumer goods, heavy industry, like the weight of what we're making goes down and the immaterial production of like prestigious positions, awards, films, books, Art is a little different because art used to have like a weight, but now with, you know, conception, postmodernism, like the post-Odia world is supposed to be, you know, producing just non-material, immaterial things as well. So that's why I say 72. You know, 72 really becomes this turning point in industrialization. And I guess I'm an old school Marxist in this way, socialist in this way, you know, material goods produces value. And, right. and that value is the value that produces the wealth of society. But 
the importance, the airtime, and the reactionary nature of the allegedly liberal classes really is transformative and produces today's professional managerial class. The art world is actually, art education is actually a really great example of how the PMC has dominated creativity. And part of it has to do with the GI Bill, which allowed all of these soldiers returning from World War II to go to college. This led to the expansion of the university. This also led to the creation of degrees like the Bachelor's of Fine Arts, the Master's of Fine Arts, these credentials that suddenly you, you could get as an artist. Howard Singerman has a great book about the history of the MFA. And, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, it was really great. Everyone in their cold water garrets in Greenwich Village just making genius stuff. You know, all these macho men um, <laughs> making stuff is the way to promote creativity. But what we increasingly did was take that creative activity, put it into arts education because universities suddenly could accommodate and had the budget to accommodate like serious arts education, art education departments. Like the New York Academy of Art, like was still functioning up until very late where, you know, you paid a fee and you went and did live drawing with a nude model. That kind of bizarre education really goes to decline as we regularize and normalize and standardize arts education. And it mm. becomes increasingly a field where a kind of professional discourse Yes. Around French theory from the 70s and 80s <laughs> onward dominates like the practice and the operations of the artist. I mean, I would say it's become professionalized. It became standardized in that period. And then my experience of entering arts after social media. So my peer group gets into it around 2010 when we graduate. Mm -hmm. It's already been standardized and now it's professionalized afterwards. And it's it's a very, it's a clear discourse. There's value systems, there's revenue flows, there's all sorts of things that, you know, art now behaves as a financial asset where people diversify their portfolios, literally their portfolios. Uh, they hedge the risk of their mm -hmm. collections. Things are insured and it's it's gone from being a consumer good to a financial asset and then things just behave differently at this period. But uh, we're kind of, we're sketching a long arc here. And um, I was interested before to ask you about this question of 1972 versus 80 and so on. As part of the previous reading on the stream, this is probably maybe it was a, a year or two ago, but we went back and read the original definition of the professional managerial class. Mm -hmm. Barbara and John Ehrenreich in 1977 in Radical America. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, it's in a very different period. So there's all sorts of jobs that are included in this definition. When I think of PMC now, I think of people who work at NGOs, nonprofits, I think of journalists, uh, mm -hmm. less than I think of like, you know, in 77, it was like nurses and doctors and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. So just in the kind of colloquial definition, I now kind of understand it as an expert class that produces commentary. And uh, maybe you and I belong to that class uh, in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the definition has shifted over the years. I think, I think one of the big differentiations we could make is that the elite quadrants of the professional manager class profess a kind of liberalism and being on the side of progress. Yes. And so when you're a nurse, Less and less so now because everyone's under DEI um, regimes, but you're, you're supposed to practice your craft of care, right? Medical care. And these journalists and the NGO types that we're talking about and the foundation people, and I would say even like liberal gallery owners, like 
they actually think that they're making the world a better place or they pretend that they're making the world a better place. A nurse is not going to say like, I'm doing my job well and I'm making the world a better place. No, she's like, I want the conditions to do my job well. Those conditions are being increasingly undermined by managed care, by you know private equity, buying up hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. But she wants to have her world best fine-tuned for her craft, right? Then you have this other class that is much more powerful that's coming in and going, no, we're going to try to extract profit. We're also going to project ourselves as being somehow like the enlightened ones, like we're all, we're vanguardists of progressive politics. And so we're going to tell you like how to deal with the climate crisis. We're going to give you information about, you know, uplifting people in the art world. We're going to tell you about like saving Afghani girls. They've got a mission. The, what you're talking about, this strata, this, what you were saying was a colloquial, maybe intuitive grasping of this class. These are the people who are your peers, who are aspirational with regard to moving up in the world. But that's our latent agenda, but their manifest agenda, like to each other, would be like, I'm just like really, you know, I'm really concerned about blah, blah. I'm really like worried about this. Don't you care? Like caring is a lot. Like, don't you care about the environment? Don't you care about like blah, blah, blah? And that, that like actually like hides this kind of disguises as kind of like brutal jockeying for position. I do not envy the yeah, young. Yeah, it's this intra-elite competition that is like cloaked in very progressive rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that um, this kind of leads me to my next question because I guess the discourse, the rhetoric that emerges from this class and their elite aspirant interests is what's driving a lot of our national discourse. It's what's driving a lot of the news cycle now. Oh, yeah. Friend of the stream, Jen Pan, suggested that we read, this is very applicable to you know young, downwardly mobile creatives, we read Death of a Yuppie Dream, The Rise and Fall of the Professional Managerial Class, again by Barbara and John Ehrenreich. Now, this one is from 2013, and they right. kind of chart between these eras, the emergence of this class and then its relative decline, looking at the percentage of people who work in the country and what sectors in which they are employed. And so I guess my, my question is something like this, where like, if we are to assume that the PMC is really on the decline, why are their interests and their rhetoric uh, so forefront in all of the discussions? Is this like, is this the last kick of a dying horse? Or are there some sectors where the PMC is actually growing in power? So um, I disagree with them. Hmm. I, I, I take the, this is where like, I broke off with the Ehrenreichs. And, um, wow, wow, oh, yeah, yeah. factional infighting. No, 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 no. I respect them so much. The late Barbara Ehrenreich will always be like my household goddess, and I respect John Ehrenreich so much for what he's done. I just disagree with them, and I don't, hmm. I, and I feel like, um, people don't know how, how to have disagreements anymore without demonizing the other, and I totally don't demonize them. I'm trying to situate where they came from in 2013. And I think I kind of talk about this in Virtue Hoarders. It's after the financial crisis. So you have all of these people, young people like yourselves who graduated in 2010, just living with crushing debt, student loan debt. All of your dreams are up in smoke. Your parents, how home values have completely been destroyed. People have lost their jobs. Like, you know, $1 trillion of American wealth was like erased, right? In that fall, 2008. And so Occupy Wall Street happens 2011. Death of a Yippie Dream is published in 2013. 
Barbara and John Aronike are looking at what they wrote in 1977. They're looking at this like economic devastation. They're looking at a generation of young white collar workers like yourselves and also sons and daughters of white collar workers, you know, who are up in arms, who are much more politicized. And I have to say like than any group of young people that we've seen since 1980. And that is the goddamn truth. I have some Instagram teenagers to introduce you to actually. It gets, it gets much worse. <laughs> right, right. And this is, this is, I'm scared of Instagram teenagers, but um, this, <laughs> this um, happens and they, they want to see this declining class, like join forces with a working class and work against capital, right? Right. I saw, from my point of view, like from now, like after 2013, 2021, or 2020, is that Occupy Wall Street is still working with this like anarcho-libertarian POMO idea of identity and vanguardism. That's still the dominant culture. And for me, that is a political dead end. And that I learned from the Barbara and John Aaronite. When you give up on the working class and you think like they're just left behind and you believe like as a PMC person that you've got some like really vanguardist thing that nobody really understands, but they will follow you eventually and you don't have any material program to demand accountability from Wall Street, from corporations, but you're like talking about David Graeber and doing drum circles. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> fuck right off. I'm sorry. I just think of that as a dead end. So they're not just like super optimistic because they're like hippies at heart. I'm like an old punk at heart. And, but, but also I'm just much more skeptical. And they taught me to be skeptical of PMC vanguardism. The bread and butter issues that the OWS people were completely cut off from. It was just like, I'm going to be like really cool. And there's still leftism like that. There's so the, the cool kid leftism just makes me insane. I don't even know if call it leftism anymore. But I still hold on to this idea. The working class is the majority of the people in the world, and their interests are going to shape any kind of mass politics in the future. This is not dissimilar to the pitch, more or less, that I give my listeners. And what I used to tell my students when I worked in the university is that there is this kind of elite, narrow band of society, call it the PMC, call it a creative professional, whatever it happens to be. Uh, but the opportunities within that space are kind of declining. So I'll just tell you a little bit of my experience in this like post-2010 environment, because yeah, people are graduating with tons of debt. It's the historically just the worst labor market you can imagine. But then I saw some people, and you know, this happened to me, the rising tide floated all the boats too. But you know, we were making basically posting weird art on Facebook. And then almost overnight, in some cases, it became worth many thousands of dollars. I was a professional artist for I, I still am, uh, although it's now a you know minority of my income. Um, but a lot of people, their lives were profoundly changed by this environment of zero interest rates. So what I would say is that there's an assembly line of people who are going through higher education, and you can kind of graduate into terrible debt and labor market. But then the rewards for the people who made it through, in some cases, made many millions of dollars off mm -hmm. of it. You know, mm -hmm. that environment, that kind of easy money, that cheap money spurred all these speculative bubbles. And in the case of art, shifting from consumable into a financial asset, the prices went up and up and up. Uh, and then, of course, what you get when the money is too cheap is you get these horrific crashes and then the assets are worthless and the market just completely melts down in a way that's impossible to rebuild. But what I noticed in that period is that the incentives for the people who were rewarded, who made it into that elite tier, 
the rewards were orders of magnitude larger than falling out of it. So there's a strata where maybe it's proportionally in the number of people who get rewarded, it's smaller, but the rewards are so much greater. This is, you know, exactly how you divide your workforce, right? You pay, you know, elite executive salaries, and then you squeeze everybody else. So falling out of it is extremely painful. But if you get the rewards, then you're very well taken care of. And that precarity tends to keep everyone in line where people were kind of afraid to break rank. There was not a real ability to exit from this professional sphere. So everyone more or less toes the line in hopes like, you know, next month it'll, it'll be, be me. me, next year yeah. it'll be me. And then yeah. I hate to tell you, but it's not. it wasn't me and it's not going to be you. So what I tell my students is that, you know, we are all downwardly mobile. The vast majority of us are downwardly mobile. And then you have this decision where you can either toe the line for elite interests and you can try and join the PMC or you can make common cause with the working class and you can try and get the bare bones benefits of social democracy and see which one of those works better for you. Which one do you think is a more likely outcome? It seems to be that there's more and more people who are kind of in this threshold area where they get a little bit of the splash, a little bit of the overflow, but they're not really getting the rewards where in these decades previous, you would have been a tenured professor and you would have been Mm -hmm. amply taken care of and housing on campus. And you'd have more or less an intellectual, academic, middle-class life. That That just doesn't exist anymore. People literally work, they teach at NYU and also drive for Uber. That's a a Mm -hmm. real scenario in Mm -hmm. 2023. Can I just ask one thing? Who's buying this art? Uh, so there's a, there's a spectrum of people. No, no, it's an interesting question. So there's a, certainly among them, there are billionaire collectors who have their own museums. That sector exists. But okay. what we saw in the, the low interest rate environments of like, uh-huh. say, 2012 to really ending in 2015, yeah. there was a affluent upper middle class that was getting interested in art as a- Financial instrument. More so yeah. in the way of like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, more in the way of like this thing, it's a big investment, but a few of them will appreciate. And if you spread the risk, say you buy 10 $10,000 paintings, and then one of them goes up to 100K, you know, an order of magnitude increase, it doesn't matter if all the others right. drop to zero right, because right. you've broken even. And in that time, you get to have like a kind of fun aesthetic hobby, you get to travel around to like fairs and museums and like stuff that's fun and interesting to see. And in terms of like, you know, elite hobbies, it's I, I think that's more interesting than playing golf or tennis or something like that. You know, art is like a cool thing to be around. So I play tennis. That cheap money. Tennis <laughs> you is do really tennis. Fun. Yeah. More fun than the art world. I'm a, I'm a gym head now in my, <laughs> okay. in my old days. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I think the speculative bubbles were spurred by that, that kind of like aspirant class that were not necessarily the billionaire collectors with museums, but they were like millionaires aspiring to have a valuable collection. Um. And then that's gone now? Well, the money got too expensive. The markets, the uh, speculative bubbles couldn't sustain for that long. So, you know, there's all sorts of different bubbles in art that happens all the time. But the particular one that coincided with my generation that had to do with, you know, social media remapping visibility and whatever, it just allowed for a few years of a very dynamic art world and Mm. allowed people like me who have very different opinions than what would have been previously allowed into the professional art world to get their foot in a door that was, you know, very difficult to push out you know. Mm, wow, that's that's really fascinating. But it really is about like delivering up people to the marketplace and making them believe that that like being in a casino, yeah. the casino of the marketplace is really great because there is no hope for just having like a good social safety net and <laughs> that's dem- exactly, democratic yeah. and yeah. uh, social democratically supported arts education. 
you know, that's that's been pounded into our heads by ideology, Milton Friedman from Hayek onward, where we think of the market as, we're supposed to think of the market as kind of liberatory, socialism as, you know, oppressive and bad for creativity. And I guess having that be so starkly apparent, though, made so starkly apparent for your generation, it's like a good teleological development. I mean, is that a good personal development, but I feel like historically speaking, there are more people of your generation who can see the totality. Hmm. Because I don't think artists of my generation were able to see that. There was, an, there was enough, the old socialist dreams were dying, and all of the old commitments, the political commitments were completely obscured at this point. It's like Gustin's career is a little bit like that. Like he won in the casino. He worked for WPA. He had nothing. He didn't go to college, but he knew all these New York intellectuals who were sort of living this post-war dream in a way. Like he became friends with Philip Roth and Woodstock when he turned away from abstract expressionism back to figurative painting. I mean, not like um, representational figurative painting, the... Uh, the blobby turd, you know, hooded figure was really part of this, <laughs> yeah. along with, you know, um, legs and machines and gearboxes and things like that. But the abstract expression has turned on him and he sort of withdrew. But every time I look at like what these people do, they're able to like afford real estate in Woodstock, which is totally unaffordable now. Right. They have like a robust um, circle of friends still, even if they're banished from the New York official art world. And the remnants of affordable housing and social welfare was still available through the 50s, 60s, and 70s to someone like him, even though he became a blue chip painter and his you know, career was revived in terms of sales. And I think it's really important to understand that social infrastructure that permits a certain kind of artist to survive and persist. Like, I'm not a big fan of like, of the genius. I don't like that kind of discourse. I do think there's something about Gustin that, you know, shakes me, fills me with admiration, and really immerses me in the struggle of someone with paint and image making. And that's like what you hope for when you look at art. You know, his brother was also like a victim of like a freak accident. He's working on his car and his car crushes his legs, then he dies. So there are all these like unattached legs in his paintings. And they're often attached to, well, disembodied legs. They're often attached to machines. And the reading, the curatorial reading, like the heavy-handed wall text would just keep repeating his brother's death and repeating his brother's death. But when you see the evolution of the images, it has a lot to do with machinery and industrial mm. machinery and mm. how these appendages get attached to machines. And um, he's like, you know, really thinking hard about these things through painting. And, you know, it's just really sad that the people who control access to art and the way we talk about art now are so deeply ideological with regard to liberalism that there's no room for other historical materialist readings. Because the one thing that you're not going to get from this reading is how important um, historical materialism was, or or leftist politics was for Gustin. There was a show 
couple of years ago. You know, like museums can be super educational. This is extremely nerdy, but this is, you know, this is my world. I can't help it. You know, Mark Chagall, who we think of as making like stained glass windows of angels and sort of Old Testament imagery in um, synagogues, was a member of like experimental communes in the early Bolshevik era. Like there are all these paintings of him with Malievich and other artists that he's drawing, like dressed as Russian peasants and living in the countryside and working. Like a lot of the best ideas about what art was came out of crucibles of leftism mm. and socialism. A lot of really bad ideas about art came out of the far right and the fascist circles. But, you know, today, if you don't line up with the identity politics, liberalism of today's elite PMC, like, they'll just call you a racist and a fascist. They'll try to, like, dispose of you. So there's a kind of homogenization that's going on through what you were talking about today is the submissiveness of an entire generation of artists and intellectuals, because the chances of succeeding within these institutions is so slim. So you think like if you just keep your head down and you don't talk about the issues that will be controversial, if you don't express any skepticism about what the authorities are saying, you might get the kiss of success. You know, fortune might smile on you. Well, my experience is, uh, and certainly my peer group was like, you finish school and you're just, you're immediately professionalized. It's like off to the races, you have to hit home runs every single time. But I, I like to maintain that, you know, I think for people like me, which, which is probably the way that most people approach art, that like you have some small presence in institutions, you have some small presence in the market, but mostly what floats your practice is doing a lot of freelance labor. Like, to, to be honest, you just, you do another job, you stockpile money, and then you try and take a little bit of time off and you make your art practice on the weekends. And those conditions would be really well supported by like the labor market and economic policy of this period that you mentioned 1945 to 72. I, mm. I kind of imagine, and if you, you know, you look at artists of those generations, they could kind of move to New York, they could bum around for a bit. You know, I listened to these interviews of the canonized artists and, you know, I won't mention anybody's name here, but uh, I, I always go back to this example. I mean, she's a tremendously talented canonized female artist from the 1970s, but uh, she moves to New York. She works as a waitress three days a week. And then she pays rent in an apartment. She pays for a separate studio. And then she pays for art materials to make unsellable experimental video work. That's like everybody I know who works in the city now works like twice as much. They live with four roommates and they're still in debt. So you just, there's like the amount of labor to free time, that ratio has dwarfed by like a quarter or like an eighth. It's just, it's it's kind of impossible to have the decommodified time that yeah. the wage floor and just all of those, you know, social democratic, we'll say a more robust welfare state. New York had, New York had, Rent control and loft loss, those things made it possible. All of those things supported the creative work. Yep. Well, so here's, so this is, this is a sensitive subject, but I, I want to hear your opinion about this because when I try and make those arguments, what I hear about those periods is that the reason why costs of living were kept low is because women and people of color were excluded from those benefits. What? And I, I tried to what? I tried to make the argument that this had to do with a Keynesian organization of the economy, of robust labor unions, of industrial policy, things like this. 
but um, that that hits a lot of friction for people today. And I think this has something to do with you're talking about this this reading of Gustin's work that it has you know less to do with industrialization or the means of production or the way that society's production has been revolutionized in his lifetime, mm-hmm. and instead it can only be a product of his personal trauma, right? Which is which doesn't seem historical and it doesn't seem like it accurately represents his perspective on his own work. I mean, I kind of make fun of it in the book by saying like, today's liberal PMC just believes that it's the most advanced class that ever lived. And I think that's just not right. But, you know, I don't know what to say. I think that the idea that you would parse the, um, you know, entrenched racism for creating social democracy, the race in America creating social democracy just seems insane to me because wealth redistribution from the top down benefited working class people of every race. People were redlined in Los Angeles. There were certainly areas where they couldn't buy homes, African-Americans who came to work in the aerospace industry and in the factories, but when there were jobs for them, and there are none now, there were single-wage jobs, yes, for fathers who could who could pay for the lives of their wives and children, but that distribution did create like a basis of African-American home ownership in South Central Los Angeles. The other thing is that you have to look at the social totality Because this is what Adorno and Horkheimer say is like, to think that if we just extirpate all forms of personal and institutional violence from ourselves without changing the structure of capitalism is to believe in a very, very fucked up utopia. It's not a utopia. To leave capitalism intact and just work on like uh, policing everyone's biases and destroying biases is not actual progress. Like you, we have to change the relationship, this sounds very dogmatic, of people to the means of production and social reproduction. Yes, there was enormous amounts of racism in this country. There still is, but making corporations more diverse does not solve that problem. Does it solve the notion of intense real estate speculation on, on, in the hands of private equity that it makes housing unaffordable? I just think it's enormously naive. I think it serves the purposes of capital when it's not being naive because it's saying, you know, let's let the corporations continue and and the monopolies to dominate our economic and political world and let's work on these identitarian issues. I mean, I I know people believe that. I I hate to be like so... um, resigned about not being able to persuade them. But I just think that if people really believe that, it's in their economic interest to believe that. So why should I persuade them? Otherwise, it's not in their economic interest. And I'm just a materialist that way. Like It benefits them somehow to believe that Keynesianism was supported by racism and sexism so that we can we have to throw out Keynesianism. I mean, I'm not Keynesianism was not the be-all and end-all for me, but I do feel like a greater um, sense of economic security produced by Keynesianism actually produced more worker discontent and rebellion against the bosses. And that basis of security is so much better than the idiotic precarity the market has delivered us to. So... If you know that you go to the doctor, that you know where your next meal is coming from, 
you're going to be a lot more critical of your boss or your manager. If you don't know that, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea, HR. I'm going to go take that training because I want to be better at this training than the other person. This is especially important for young people on the left who have like romantic notions of revolution that as the conditions get worse, then you will eventually like foment revolution just spontaneously out of thin air. The worse things get, the less risks people can take in the workplace, right? So just having just a small amount of security allows you to be much more aggressive in your organizing and your risk-taking and so on. And in your sense of solidarity with the struggles of other people, I was just looking at statistics about the incredible rise in um, child poverty in the United States. The rates of increase in child poverty is pretty terrible. It goes from 12 to like 19% between December 2021 and January 2022. But the ways that the rates of increase are distributed are, you know, affecting whites and Latino children more. Blacks and um, African-Americans and Asian-Americans have lower rates of increase in poverty. Now, you know, this is like interesting demographically, but... This is not to say like, oh, well, let's just only help the people who have more poor children. No, it's like there, there should be cross-racial solidarity. Like why did it go, why did child poverty go up by 7%? Yeah, it should, it should be zero. It doesn't matter what exactly. they are. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then they're like parsing all these things. That's like a very NGO and means-tested way of approaching this. And I'm thinking like, we should care about every single American child, regardless of race, equally. And you know, the, the poverty threshold is very, very sad. It's like $1,200 a month for like a family of three. That's hardly livable in most um, urban areas. So there are a lot more children who are working, who are living in lower middle class, working class families who don't fall under the um, poverty threshold, but whose lives are just, you know, really riven by economic insecurity and suffering. So I can't understand why we need to be like, oh yeah, they're just sexist and they're racist. They're exploiting and sucking the lifeblood from the majority of American people and then making them feel ashamed for being poor and just completely excluding everyone from any kind of any of the pleasures of sociality and democracy that we might be able to boast of still as a country. It's the other thing is like 20% of American children have known hunger in the past year. If you're hungry, you're not able to appreciate play, beauty, any of these things. Like these are the right universal rights of every single human being. Like on this level, I'm like a total enlightenment liberal, right? If you're hungry, you're not able to have a relationship with art. You're not able to have a relationship with sport. You're not able to have a, relation, a pleasurable relationship to your surroundings. You're just, you're surviving in this, in an affluent society that actually has enough food to feed all of us. I mean, many times over. That's what kills me. Is this part of the problem that maybe today's liberals have lost their enlightenment values? Oh yeah, completely. They don't care. They're anti-universal. And, and is this not a peculiar, it's a strange situation where you have to be on the left reminding the liberals of their enlightenment values. Because they, <laughs> Liberty, went, to, they went to art school, babe, and they read all those postmodernists, <laughs> and they were like, oh, humanism, universalism, bad. We have a whole indoctrination, and a whole indoctrinated <laughs> libertarian anarcho bunch of people who 
RDSA. <laughs> yeah, the the only universalism that they believe in now is the gold standard. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's it. That's the only thing that spans cultures, different societies. Um, but speaking of art school, you teach now. I used to teach, and and now people listen to a podcast, and I talk about my syllabus. But ostensibly, both of us are talking to an audience that are in roots or currently in competition for these elite PMC roles. What is it that you tell your students? What do they personally have to gain from social democracy? Why should they care about that? I try. I don't、um, explicitly talk about any of my ideological commitments, especially with undergraduates and graduate、mm. students these days. I try to show what a historical materialist understanding of leisure, film,、um, narrative,、um, theory might be. So I don't give. Advice like this, I feel like the advice industry is about is also about infantilizing people. One way in which these curators can think that we're all so stupid that we couldn't figure out what Gustin was saying is that we've all been pummeled into believing that we need help knowing how to live our lives, and we need advice about how to succeed or professionalize. And so I just do a lot more showing and a lot less telling, like. I'll repeat things about the Cold War. About I, I really emphasize like the House Un-American Committee and how it changed Hollywood. I really emphasize the Hayes Code and how it was like industry self-regulation. So a lot of these remnants of working class culture that was in the film industry that came out of vaudeville and body, you know,、um, performance become much more streamlined in the studio era. I just try to give them the tools to do historical and materialist analysis on their own. Because the other thing about a lot of these postmodern identitarians, we want to call it that, or these theory heads, is that there's a lot of insecurities when you're given like a lot of neologisms that no one understands, and that you don't really understand the world, but you're, you know, you have these like postmodern tools, and you're trying to show off about them. I, I don't think those are good tools for. Analyzing film, making film, analyzing art, or making art. So I just try to give my students like better, better、um, analytic tools. The thing about theory, someone said to me recently, which I totally take because I was definitely like this, is that it offers the person with not a lot of social or cultural capital an immediate access to、um, history by saying history is not important or you don't need to know the canon. You can have these like imminent critiques of things, just be a Deleuzian, and if you like read Deleuze, <laughs> then you know about art. You know because it's very overwhelming to think about like. You know, art history, or you know, the history of painting, or the history of sculpture, and、um, especially if you come from a family that never took you to museums and you never had that cultural capital. So, in that sense, like I think, like theory was a way for socially mobile people of my generation to gain access to the、um, the canon in a more immediate way. It was very superficial with it because I would go back and I'd be like, "Oh my God, I'm so badly educated on this, this, and this. I need to go back and read like what the postmodernists were actually criticizing in the 18th century." Or if Foucault thinks Marx is dumb here and he thinks Freud is dumb there, I need to read Freud and Marx to understand like what's going on actually with what he's projecting. So a lot of it was my own self education. So I never want to.、Um, Give my students like the the bad tools to make them feel both contemptuous of、um, history 
and aesthetics while feeling insecure about their own approach to it. So I try to be as concrete. Does that make sense to you? Very old fashioned. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to art school. I participated in like new media, you know, new aesthetic, post-internet, creative communities for years. I was like, oh shit, I have to read Foucault. I got to read Deleuze. I got to do all this stuff. And then, you know, when you um, actually get involved in political circles or you listen to somebody organize in their workplace, I've not heard one fucking person mention Deleuze. Like this is, I mean, this is nonsense. It's a get out of jail free card in your press release for an art show where you can just have a Deleuze block quote because it means fucking nothing. It's unintelligible poetry. And of course, like you're trying to obfuscate what the thing means to maintain an asset price because if it was transparent, then people would realize the thing is valueless. (laughs) So I'm really, I'm very skeptical on these things now. And I feel like my position has been hardened by the actual experience of being excluded from elite benefits. And now I've had to reckon with like what really matters. And a lot of this theory is just kind of fluff. It's uh, academic decoration on top of people who are trying to pursue careers and in institutions and whatever. And, you know, um, I'm just, I don't, I don't have a dog in that fight anymore. I'm not pursuing those jobs. And thus it does not benefit me to participate in this theory that doesn't map to my experience in the real world. So fuck them. Are there, a, are there any jobs <laughs> anyway to pursue? You know, it's like, they That's gave the you thing, guys, there's not. They gave you there's guys not. the carrot and then they took it away. Exactly. No, no, I shouldn't be so cynical, but I really admire what you're doing. I admire like everyone who, like an artist is trying, or anyone who's trying to be an independent intellectual now and do a kind of public education service. Because I think the people who are listening to you, who are following you, who might um, benefit from this kind of work is, you know, someone who's probably discontent with the monopoly on art and education that the higher education institutes want to have. And so we're just trying to free that knowledge, free that discourse, free that dialogue from these enclaves. I try to do that in my social media, in my public world. When I am in the world of the institution, I try to behave like a professional and I try not to like get into stupid fights with my colleagues because I know that if we have a debate and like they prove themselves right or I prove myself right, it has zero consequences anywhere. But with my students, and this is what I find the most rewarding, I try to teach them a little bit against the grain of what they've been learning to give them thick historical, political, crypto Marxist context. I will say like, I'm a Marxist, but here's, you know, we're, we're going to look at the industrialization of food. I'm not going to do like M, C, M prime um, formula with them because- I would, because I would be in the front row of that class. I'd be like, shit, let's do it. Well, they're, um, they're film majors from middle-class families, some working-class families who want to- make it and get jobs and they're curious, they're smart. They come from a world where they have um, maybe like some material well-being, but not a lot of social and cultural capital. So for me, I just want to make them feel comfortable in, in the discourse. And then if they're interested further on in the deeper explorations of Marx, then I'm ready to go with there. But it, it subtends my entire critique of industrially produced images or industrially produced genres um, at the same time that it's all about like having some respect for 
the historical circumstances of why romantic comedies were so delightful in the 1930s, you know, because people were really suffering and this was a world where everyone was rich in the rom-com. You know, the economic tension or fear was gone. I mean, that I'm talking about my undergraduates. So for the graduate students, I'm like, you know what? They're, they're lost to theory. <laughs> I can't help them. If you're, well, I don't have an MFA myself, so I, I I did not fall. I mean, I'm very much the anomaly. I'm like one of the only people in my peer group. Ooh. I'm always the exception to the exception, and then I find myself doing this weird fucking project that this is loot money though. hand over fist, and yeah, Dude. yeah. But it's Shoot. you know I, what I care about this stuff, so that's uh, that's where I am. Catherine, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. I am just in such admiration of your work and your book. Virtue Hoarders that I'm I'm holding up here on the screen. Well, people on the podcast may not see it, but Virtue Hoarders is available now through University of Minnesota Press. They can find you on Substack if they want to read more of your writing, and I'll link all of your socials and everything in the bio. But yeah, I've I've really enjoyed this, and I've, it, your content has been so influential in the past few years. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Joshua, for giving me a chance to talk about art, which I love to do and which I normally don't do in a lot of the political podcasts I'm on. But near and dear to me, I really care about this stuff. And I think it's deeply political, but maybe not in the way that other people in our world think is political. So uh, thank you for letting me talk about aesthetics. Thank you so much, Catherine. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.